He came to the U.S. from Iran as a teenager, not knowing anyone, not even knowing English. He is now a strategic consultant, global keynote speaker, and the expert on building professional relationships. He shows how relationships are the greatest off-balance sheet asset of any organization. You're in for a treat today. My conversation with the author of Relationship Economics, as well as his latest book, Co-Create. It's David Noor on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in, and thanks for joining us. I'm Jim Carr. Here, each week, we discuss three foundational components for growing your business. One, your message, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want to share. Two, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message. And three, management habits that will shape your culture and turn those improvements into an everyday business advantage. We know it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. It's my great pleasure to introduce you to a mentor and someone I call friend. David Noor has one of those hard-to-imagine-yet-absolutely-true personal stories, which he can detail. Coming to the U.S. as a teenager with a suitcase, a hundred bucks, limited family ties, and no knowledge of the English language. But David's story isn't ultimately one of his own grit and determination, although those are true. His experience led him to see relationships and community in a way that only a few of the rest of us could. Now, he is a consultant, coach, speaker, and guide, helping leaders in some of the world's biggest and most complex organizations make sense of and profit from their most important relationships. He was selected as one of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 coaches from a pool of more than 16,000 applicants. David has written several books. He's probably best known for the book Relationship Economics. We'll talk about that one a bit, as well as its successor, titled Co-Create, How Your Business Will Profit from Innovative and Strategic Collaboration. During the past couple of years, I've been able to see some of David's work firsthand and have even been invited into his select cohort community. I think you'll be inspired today, but even more so, there's a lot of very practical guidance for building your relationships and building your business in a co-create economy. David Noor, welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. Jim, it is good to be with you and your audience. What wow, what an introduction. I need more friends like you in my life. That's very kind. I appreciate it and look forward to our session today. Me very much so, and I know our listeners will too. David, you do have a fascinating personal story, and I know you're not here to talk about yourself, but certainly that experience is so unique. It must have shaped your views about business and relationships in particular ways. I think it makes sense to set some context here, you know, specifically how you've seen how relationships can lead transactions and success rather than putting transactions first. You're exactly right. So I wrote in the Relationship Economics book, and I certainly didn't get it then, but I get it now. My dad walking me through bazaars of Iran, I think I was five or six years old, that dad didn't just have a to-get you know, item list. He didn't have a checklist of things mom wanted at the house or 
plumbers and people he needed to visit it with, but also dad had a relationship list. And we made sure on our Friday errands, we went and saw the relationships that were important to him. And what I learned at a very young age is, and it's been reinforced now every time I get on a plane and go abroad, is that Jim, and I know you and your audience are going to relate to this, the rest of the world builds relationships first from which they do business. Unfortunately, as Americans or even Westerners, we're so focused on that purchase order or that checklist or that project plan or whatever that transactional thing is that we have to do that if and only if when that part goes well, we'll think about asking you know, about your family or your vacations or, Jim, you're not quite yourself today. What's going on with you? And hence the disconnect when we go into places and people don't look like us, sound like us, or come from our backgrounds. So I'm a huge believer that relationships have to be the arrowhead, not the feathers at the tail end of the arrow. So if you lead with relationships first and foremost, hopefully it would keep us from making some short-term mistakes that tend to haunt us in the long term. Let's talk a little bit more deeply about relationships because it was foundational in relationship economics, uh, the ideas that you have in co-create. A lot of our listeners, a lot of the people that I serve as clients, a lot of the people that I deal with a lot, they are executives, they're team leaders, organizational leaders, they're in professional services. And David, I hear all the time, people talk about their teams, their companies, and they'll say, hey, ours is a relationship business. But they tend to think of that. And this is something that you've helped me to see a little bit more clearly as well, is oftentimes professionals are seeing that I think maybe their list of friends or customers or clients is really kind of a list gathering. They're not really thinking about that very strategically. So as a first step to seeing those relationships and building them in a different sort of way, how do you help leaders to be able to see this? As you say, it's a latent off-balance sheet asset that you really need to get your mind around. No question. And again, in the Relationship Economics book, I talked about three types of business relationships, or three types of relationships I think we all have. Number one is personal. These are friends. These are people you go play golf with. They're you know poker buddies. They're, they like us with warts and all, right? They're discretionary because we pick and choose them. Yet we're never sure how they might or might not be relevant to our professional success. My next door neighbor, Tim, great guy. Love him. Love Emily. Their son, Ford, daughter, Savannah. We've been over there. They've been at the house. He runs a small landscaping business that we've certainly talked about, but it's not really relevant to my professional life. So we know each other as social, casual friends. The next bucket is really your functional relationships. So these are people that you work with, let's just say because you have to. Let's be honest, some of our clients or colleagues or, you know, they may not be discretionary. We may not pick them, but they're certainly very, you know, relevant to kind of what we do day in and day out. Most people I meet have plenty of the first two. They miss out on what you alluded to, which are really more strategic relationships who can elevate your thinking elevate your perspective. If you're running a $10 million business, strategic relationships should help you run a $20, $50 million, either line of business or a business or a practice or whatever it may be. If you're leading today, 20 people, 50 people, 100 people, strategic relationships, if that's your intent, can really help you think about what would it be like to lead 1,000 people. My point is, most people I meet certainly understand the importance of relationships 
they don't really think about the significance of them. And the fundamental difference is really that the strategic long-term view of how relationships can be enablers of our personal and professional growth. Does that make sense? Does that resonate? It certainly does. And those strategic relationships, as you put it, the ones that really elevate you in probably in numerous sort of ways, both personally and professionally, those aren't going to be the, the majority of the people you know or the people in your database, right? That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, you know, we created this relationship value pyramid. And I would submit at least half of everybody you know. I call them situation. They come, they go, really nice people, but it's that you never know stack of business cards. You never know when that person, and again, we're talking about business relationships, you know, is going to become much more relevant. The next group is really an investment where you invest time and effort to get to know them and vice versa. The next group we call your portfolio. They're your subject matter experts. They're your go-to people. The very pinnacle of all your relationships, as you know, we call 2 AMs. These are business relationships you really could call 2 in the morning. And the first question is, are you okay? And if money's no object, they can write you a $25,000 check, no questions asked. So there's this depth. There's this relevancy. Strategic relationships, you don't have to work to impress. They already know you. Hopefully, they like you. Hopefully, they trust you. More importantly, they see your full potential. They see what you're capable of. They have a vested interest in your success. And Jim, in my experience, those strategic relationships uh, bolster us. They empower us. They enable us to do things even beyond their own perceived limitations. And do you have it? And that all does make sense. And I think as you're speaking through that, we all consider the people that we know we feel closest to, that we know the best, that we think can help us, that we want to help them. And yet we have a sense of what that means. But at the same time, David, I heard a complaint from a friend of mine, not a client, but just someone who's in uh, financial services, professional services. It was talking about how they had a big deal coming up and someone that he's known and liked for a long time. But he goes, I can't get that person to do business with us. And so kind of bridging that gap in terms of both, how do you recommend people to assess that? And what is if there is a number or a feed system for those more strategic relationships and how to help people elevate that whole portfolio? Yeah. First and foremost, again, Jim, you and I have been married for a while, and I think you would appreciate this comment that it's been a few presidents since I've dated. <laughs> but if you remember dating somebody who didn't want to date you, right? It's an uphill battle and you know it just doesn't ever work out well. So first and foremost, the tip that I give most folks is don't force it. And sociologists tell us that there's this natural give and take between us. So we give a little, people take, they judge, they give a little. We take, we judge, we give some back. And again, there's this natural exchange. Too much, too fast. And you're like, whoa, 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 dude, we just met, right? And too little, and people are going to think you're distant or a snob. or So you got to let relationships kind of work through their natural give and take, number one. Number two, way too many people, 20 years in this carrying the flag of business relationships, and I continue to see it, way too many people ask before they give. They have their hands out. Hey, what can you do for me? And what they're not thinking about is the other person, if and I love this, it's a Southern phrase. If my mouth is not saying it, my face is showing it, <laughs> which is, I don't know you. I don't like you. I'm not sure I trust you. Why would I ever buy from you? 
And those four steps, I reiterate to frontline salespeople and I reiterate to global leaders like me, know me, trust me, pay me. It works in that sequence. There's a Johnny Carson used to say, there's a likability factor about all of us, right? So I'm not by any stretch advocating people, your listeners, to be somebody who they're not. As a matter of fact, I would submit that most people have a BS radar, right? And today, this day and age, authenticity matters more than ever before. But you've got to be likable. You've got to let people see who the real you is. And the best way, and I've always heard this, you want to be interesting, become interested, right? So engaging others, making conversations more about them, it all goes a long way in making you likable. If you're likable, people will invest time to get to know you. Hopefully, when they get a chance to get to know you, they'll see that they trust you. They can trust you. And it's not something that's said. So believe it or not, I actually coach people, stop saying trust me because they don't. Trust has to be felt. But only when they trust you, only when people genuinely feel like you have their best interest at heart, will they buy from you. And not just products and services, but ideas and perspectives. And that's interesting, Jim. We've never thought about it that way. So I would submit that your listeners will be best served if they reciprocate first, if they start by giving before they ask. So start by investing in those relationships that are critical to them and really work through this idea of how do I earn your trust to then do business with us? Yeah. Earning the trust and not asking for it. I think that's an excellent point. Developing those strategic, trustworthy relationships would seem to be the bridge into what you talk about in your latest book called Co-Create. And I wanted to get into that a bit. And I found it very practical. And you're looking at your team, your organization, and trying to innovate. David, you have a lot of experience with a lot of companies all over the world. So you obviously felt pretty strongly that this concept, this path of co-creation is really key to innovation. What was it that pulled you in that direction? Sure. So Books for me, Jim, have to percolate. So it takes me about three to four years to research a topic. And at some point, you've read enough, you've talked enough, you've consulted enough, you've spoken enough about a topic, you feel like you have something to say. And what I fundamentally run into, and to this day, and the book came out recently, are companies who are struggling to evolve their value proposition to remain relevant. The market is so dynamic. It is looking for speed. It is looking for agility. It is looking for you to move and continue to evolve that value proposition. So 75% of our clients are going through some sort of transformation. They're all struggling with, I love the uh, Marshall Goldsmith. You were kind enough to mention the MG100. I love Marshall's book. It's on my desk. What got you here won't get you there. And that is so true for almost every company I come across. And by the way, if you're audience is skeptical, I would highly encourage them to get to the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas that first week in January, because in about 15 minutes, they'll see that every business currently is or soon will be under attack. And not just the business themselves, but their business models. So innovation is sexy. Innovation, you know, who do you and I meet that isn't talking about it? What nobody's talking about is how complex it is. Not difficult, but truly complex. And by the way, how it has to be a stair step. And by that, I mean, 
if you think about this idea of iteration, is doing the same things better. And I think your audience could iterate, and most of them do, fairly well. So look at what's working for you today, look at what is not working, and find opportunities to iterate. So do the same things better. You do enough iteration, you'll stumble onto innovation, which is how do we do new things, right? How do we start doing a new approach? How do we start with, you know, that's interesting. Let's do it a different way. It's doing things differently in many ways. You do enough of different, you'll stumble to disruption, which is doing new things that make the old obsolete. Now, the challenge is none of us have all the answers. As a matter of fact, my dad drove into us. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room, right? So the days of any of us walking in and saying, Mr. Client or Mr. Prospect or Mr. Partner, whoever, you sit there, you be quiet. Let me tell you how smart I am. Those days are numbered. Instead, what you want to do is you want to walk in. There's several case studies in the book. I've seen this firsthand. Those who walk in and invite their most valuable relationships, their most strategic relationships into a co-creation process often come up with solutions that, A, neither party could have done alone. Number two, the end result is dramatically stronger, dramatically better than they could have ever come up with on their own. So I would submit that your future won't be created. Your future will be co-created. It's such a powerful concept, David, and we will talk about a couple of those examples and really make this concrete. One of the things of a powerful concept like that is not only, I find, help me plan toward the future, but I'll look back at some things that I thought were breakthroughs. And say, oh, it kind of explains how we were able to find, you know, as you say, go from simply iterating, becoming a little bit better at the same thing to true innovation. I was going to relay a story. This was long before you and I met. And see what you think, because you also have a concept here about picking up faint market signals of areas where you really uh, can innovate and can create things with a partner, with a customer. Uh, This was back in uh, the days when I was leading marketing for a bottled spring water company. And we, in addition to plastic, also had packages of glass, which were designed to sit on a tabletop at a nice restaurant or in a food service or whatever the case might be. And we had a tiny company, David, and that industry is dominated by really big companies, you know, Nestle, Coca-Cola, Pepsi. So we were trying to figure how we could do something potentially a little bit different to try to break into some of those environments. Well, we had a longstanding relationship, a strategic relationship with a company that make the actual glass bottles. We'll design them. And at the time, Everybody, if you go into a restaurant and they ask if you'd like some bottled, either sparkling or still water, there's typically going to be a glass bottle with a paper label. So we spent some time trying to think, was there anything that we could do different and started to have those sorts of conversations with our valued vendor and partner who makes the glass bottles. And what we found, and I think, David, this might fall under this category of faint market signals. We go into some of these restaurants who have and discovered that there was a bit of a problem in that any good restaurateur wants a perfect table, wants a perfect guest experience, but they also have limited storage space for chilling water. And if you have a glass bottle and a paper label, what's the first thing that will degrade in that package? Going to be the paper label. And so we were innovating a little bit, or at least coming up with some ideas with this manufacturer 
is there a way that we can get around that problem so that the bottle looks perfect every time that they want to bring it out? So as it turned out, the manufacturer was experimenting with some different ways of fusing the label materials onto the bottle. So it wasn't just paper that was stuck on there. And so we were willing to kind of do this. And uh, as it turned out, we experimented together and rolled that out and both sides won awards and we got some attention in the industry and some new customers. But it was only to your point, David, about first having a relationship that was open, that we could say, hey, is there something that we could do together that might help each other out? And then being willing to really roll up our sleeves and work on it together based on this faint market signal that we thought we had identified. Yeah, it's exactly right. So you brought up relationship economics, and that's why in the Star Wars vernacular, relationship economics is really the prequel to co-create because we found that co-creation is most successful if you begin with a foundation of really strategic relationships. And the story you bring up is exactly right. So I call a lot of those relationships as signal scouts. And these are relationships you build across the market, across the industry, by the way, in very different places. And Jim, this has probably happened to you as well. You hear something once, you think that's an anomaly. You hear something two, three times, now you're thinking, wait a minute, especially from different, very diverse buckets, right? From very different walks of life. And that's what we call faint market signals. And I often coach people to listen louder because those faint market signals, believe it or not, are all around us. Are you savvy enough to pick them up? And more importantly, have a collection mechanism for bringing these in and much more importantly, a filtering mechanism to really distinguish those that are just noise, and there's a lot of noise in a lot of different markets, versus those that are real signals, those that are gaining traction, those that are the glass versus the plastic or glass. So market product fit, a lot of times come from find a need, fill a need. And that finding the need comes from several people saying, I wish we had something like that, or how cool would it be if we could do this and that? And by the way, enough people asked for a cool cold coffee that Starbucks figured out, what if we had a prepackaged cold coffee drink, but didn't know anything about cold drinks and refrigeration and stocking and distribution. So they partnered with Pepsi to come up with the Frappuccinos, right? And there's multiple examples of people who co-create something very differently based on these faint market signals. And you mentioned signal scouts, and I think that's a really important concept too. So we would all have that great intention. Yes, yes, you're right, David. We should listen louder. We should not just say, hey, do you want to reorder more of the same thing or do it things in the same process, but look for those signals. But you also mentioned that there's got to be a process here of collecting, filtering, testing the ideas. So you deal with a lot of really good companies who must have some sort of process. So there are characteristics here yeah. that our listeners, as they think about how to not only pay attention and record these and be able to come back to it and see, am I picking up that sort of signal, as you say, two or three or four times, and then figure, is it a good fit for us? How do you make that a process? It is a discipline, right? It's a discipline to first and foremost, build relationships and cast as wide of a net as possible. And this is the way I want you and your audience to think about it. 
the more diverse your portfolio of relationships, the broader your influence footprint. It works the exact same way when it comes to innovation and signal scouts. The more diverse your portfolio of relationships, the better chance you have to pick up a signal from a manufacturing opportunity here, a, I kid you not, timeshare client over there, a healthcare client or conversation over here, and a professional service or financial service client over there. And I love this. You do this. You work with a ophthalmology client like you do with a manufacturing client, and you work with you know, a Fortune 50 client. And on the surface, it'd be very easy to say, well, those have nothing in common. Only when you sharpen that aperture or only when you start to sharpen your listening, not to respond, but truly listen to understand, only when you sharpen that lens to really see what's not being said or really uncover the hidden agenda, hidden value, hidden needs, will you start to identify those faint market signals. And in my experience, they're best done through these relationships that you build in very diverse camps, diverse buckets. And David, I suspect you would tend to agree with this in terms of knowing one's industry really well. Sometimes I think a lot of leaders can know their own industry too well. You know, you kind of have a similar pattern of thinking, a similar lingo. And so evaluating ideas in these market signals, you obviously need to know the dynamics of an industry well enough to know, does it fit with our product market spaces? But it's such an easy trap to fall into conventional thinking and have that lens, have that aperture be a little bit cloudy that way. Do you see that as well? Absolutely. And again, it's the unconscious bias that we all develop because we're so focused in our industry, right? So I don't know about you. I hear it all the time from clients. You know, I've been in this business for 30 plus years. And what that is saying, and it's probably not their intent, is, well, there's nothing new I can learn. And Jim, you've heard me say this. I'm a huge believer that the day you stop learning is the day you become complacent. The day you become complacent, you're no longer valuable to your biggest asset, which is your portfolio of relationships. So it is, and again, just a data point for you or your, for, your, for your audience, I'm blessed. I speak 50, 60 times a year globally, and yet I force myself to attend an interesting conference, interesting event at least once a quarter where I have no responsibility whatsoever. I sit in the audience and I'm just there to be a sponge. I'm there to learn from other presenters. I'm there to learn from people sitting around me. I participate in roundtable discussions. I attend to this day. I attend at least one or two webinars. I listen to a whole bunch of podcasts because you know what? It's like food. It's intellectual food. You never know where or how you're going to see an idea, hear an idea, meet that one person that has that one perspective that dramatically changes your lens. And it may not happen instantaneously or that day or that week or that month, but somehow it comes around with, wait a minute, I heard someone say this, or I heard them talk about this. That's exactly what we need to look into for this challenge or this opportunity. I've heard innovation described as taking something from one domain and lifting it and applying it and tailoring it into a new domain. I don't know that there's anything that's that original under the sun anymore, but as you say, I think you have to make intentionally the effort to look through different lenses, to get in different companies of people, and as you say, have that more diverse portfolio of relationships, hear things in a different way. That's exactly right. And when this podcast goes well and I'm invited back, the the next session we can talk about potentially the next book, which is the tentative title is Curve Benders. 
And it's really the intersection of future of work and strategic relationships. And it's all about looking at cross-industry pollination of ideas. And what is working in manufacturing that absolutely could be relevant to healthcare? Or what is happening in professional services that could be relevant in marine world, right? And you're seeing more and more of this. And you're going to love this. I know you also have a book coming out. I'm excited to both endorse it, but also read it. And I would submit to you that you'll learn more about your topic after the book is published because people come up to you afterwards and they challenge your ideas and challenge your perspectives. And I'm writing the subsequent edition of Co-Create. And it's amazing the examples people come up with. And there's all kinds of really interesting ideas that other people bring to the table. And a lot of those are intersection of industries that you wouldn't think would be relevant to each other. Well, David, first of all, Thank you for that. Second, you have already punched your return ticket for the podcast. And that'll be exciting to start talking about curb vendors and that whole concept, because I think it's extremely relevant. And third, it just comes to mind, someone that you and I both admire and follow a lot, Alan Weiss, probably the single most successful solo consultant ever, who uh, is fond of saying, despite everything he's done and everything he knows, it's amazing how stupid I was two weeks ago. And Alan is a good, and you and I are both uh, big students of Alan. And he's, again, an example of a strategic relationship, right? Alan doubled my business. Every time I talk to him, he forces you to think and makes you want to continue to learn. And I love that comment, which also points to some of his humility of constantly learning. I often say, never stop growing, never stop learning. And we all have enormous amount we can learn. You bet. David, there's at least one more topic I'd like us to chat about here. And it's a very important concept in the book, Co-Create. You talk about the importance of enterprise evangelism. And I certainly agree. It's something that I pay a lot of attention to, whether you call them evangelists, advocates, fans, tend to call them messengers. The organizations who really innovate and grow seem to always have this robust network of people to help spread the word. And I find that to be a manageable business issue. And one of the tools, and you get to this in the book as well, if you want people, whether you have some important idea or initiative, could even be an internal initiative, or it could be something out facing the customer world, is to get people to really understand the vision, understand the strategy, and embrace it. And being able to do that in this complex world is through a picture through visualization, visual storytelling. You share an example in the book that might make this really come alive for the audience with Hilton. They had a talent challenge. It's a big, complex, interconnected initiative. And you helped them co-create a visual journey to help them find success. Could you break that down a little bit about the way of just painting a picture for people that you want to be your evangelist? Jim, if words are the language of ideas, I would submit that images are the language of dreams. And if you think of a strategy or a vision or any kind of initiative, I would submit that it's best captured, communicated. If you want to get buy-in, if you want to get people to understand where and how their contributions will further it, will success-proof it, will enable its execution, I would submit that is best done visually. That's one. Number two, 
way too many organizations we meet today, their stories are unnecessarily complicated. And it is just as true for a small, medium business as it is the large enterprises that I work with. You ask them, and I'm sure, I don't know if this happens to you or your audience, you ask somebody, what is it that you do? And 45 minutes later, they're still digging themselves a hole that they got to work really hard. That's why you're in business, right? I love you right. managing the message because they're still digging themselves out of that hole. And, you know, I've got that tilted head, confused look going on. And I finally come around to say, in the category of questions not answered, what do you do? And unfortunately, we've gotten to a place where the value of our ideas are measured by the weight of our PowerPoint presentations. So the Hilton example is a fantastic one. So Hilton, as you know, great organization, world renowned, one of the you know hospitality brands in the world. And they realized very quickly that the next generation, millennials, didn't want to come into their properties and see their parents, if not their grandparents, working there. So they said, we got to do a better job in our college recruiting. Now, there's 15 universities in the U.S. that specifically have a hospitality practice. And what they would do is go to these schools and they do an information session, like a lot of brands do. And I met a fabulous gentleman. Rod Moses was their former head of global talent. And I met Rod and I said, okay, well, tell me, what are you guys doing in information sessions? They're like, well, we tell them about the Hilton story and the brand that, okay, well, could you send me a copy? So they sent me this presentation and I kid you not, the presentation literally says we were the first brand that had color TVs. We were the first brand that had room service. And I'm like, okay, let me get this straight. They're not watching your TVs and they're not eating in your property. Why would they care? So it's a classic case of the messages that Hilton was trying to send was just not even on the same hemisphere with what this audience wanted to hear. And I said, by the way, great relationships are derived from great conversations. So instead of you sit there, you be quiet, let me tell you how great we are. What if we created the Hilton campus conversations? And they said, well, what would that look like? I said, well, number one, we got to realize that it's not about us, us being Hilton. It's about the students. Number two, how do we come alongside them? How do we make them the hero of the journey and really come alongside them both on campus and off to enable their learning, their growth, their success? So make a long story short, we literally created this one page. I kid you not. And it's actually the example of it is in the book of this Hilton campus conversation. And it's a stair step from freshman year where they're trying to figure out where all the dead people buildings are, right? to sophomore year where they're trying to say, okay, I survived freshman year, now what? How do we clean them up? How do we help them with their resumes and LinkedIn profiles? By junior year, let's create a hospitality Olympics where they come and different brands kind of compete. Let's create an externship where they go work in a hotel for a week, but also stay there at nights and kind of experience it as a guest. And by their senior year, let's have both direct hires, but also a management development program. All of that encapsulated in one image, which is now up in all the major schools where they do recruiting in the Career Services Center. And get this, Hilton's recruiting from their college campuses is up 400%. Why? Because the story is no longer about just Hilton. The story is now about Hilton as an enabler of those students learning, growing, and really finding their career path in that journey, in that, how do I learn? How do I grow? How do I really get into this 
hospitality field. And we did it all through a very visual message, a visual strategy, a visual initiative that resonates to this day and then some. It's a remarkable story. I would say case study, but that's too bland and sterile. It's a great story, both for the students that Hilton was trying to identify and recruit and certainly a great success story for Hilton. And a few things that our message manager listeners here that really stood out. First of all, this was not like a slick slogan or promotional campaign. It was first and foremost revealing a reality of the way that both college life was going and how Hilton could fit into that. Secondly, it seemed very smart to me, David, about how you with your client Hilton were really reverse engineering the right conversations for the right sequence of this process of this journey that was there. So not every conversation is going to be the same. It's not all kind of at the folding table at the job fair, right? You know, you're trying to offer and help and guide those young people at different stages who have different needs and questions all along the way. And finally, the point is, it really was about the student's story, right? It was not trying to tell the Hilton story or whoever their employer would be, but really having them see their current reality as well as their future. And as you say, nothing does that better than some simple visuals where people can project themselves into that picture. You're exactly right. And it goes back to the way we do strategy visualization engagements is first and foremost, the audience. Who are you trying to engage? Number two, what's the desired outcome? What do you want them to think, feel, or do differently? And the third is what story do we want to tell? What story do we genuinely believe will be relevant, will be believable, right? That's the whole credibility, empathy, authority piece. And then lead them down the path they're dying to go, which is to buy from you, buy your ideas, buy your perspective. They want to believe in you. Those I got to stop calling them kids because I've got one going to school as well. But (laughs) those kids want to believe that Hilton, and it really is a great company and a company you can come and learn and grow. And, but they're not going to sit there and you're going to lose them if you show up and just say, let me tell you all about us versus, Hey, we want to invite you into this journey with us. We want to invite you into this dialogue with us. And I would submit for your audience, that is just as relevant. Like I said, we've done it for a small company. We've done it for a fintech company. We've done it for a manufacturing client. We've done it for a professional service client. We actually worked on a project, Jim, you're going to love this, anti-bribery and corruption. Lynn Wilson, my creative director, says, can I draw a guillotine? And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, you, no, you cannot. I was envisioning shackles about. maybe or an orange jumpsuit. No, you know, you cannot. So the point is, how do we simplify? How do we clarify? How do we, and again, this is why I'm excited to be on your podcast. How do we help clients manage that message and really convey it with succinctness, with clarity in a compelling and engaging story that's well told? And by the way, it's remembered and it's repeated. And that's exactly what we all want for all of our stories. David, your first, not last, very first uh, appearance here on the Manager Message Podcast, as I knew it would be. It's an inspiring just chock full of ideas for building relationships, for innovation, and co-creating great ideas and initiatives with other people as well. I really appreciate this. David, how can people learn more about you, your current books, things that are on the horizon, and even your keynote speeches? 
Very kind, Jim. I was delighted to be with you. Easiest way is just our website, which is just norgroup, N-O-U-R group.com. We're in the process of painter's house needs painting, right? So we're in the process of revamping it, but that's a good way. You can also just Google my name, David Nor, N-O-U-R, and you'll find a plethora of, we've got a very active YouTube channel and there's newsletters and blog. And and I'm also fairly active on social. So if you want to get to see my family, if you want to get to see what I actually do for we- on weekends and motorcycles and scouting and all the other parts of, which again, I'm a big believer of what we do isn't who we are. You can also find all that. Just Google my name and I'd welcome your audience to learn more about our work, including the speaking, the books, and some of the other stuff we're working on. And message managers, David, uh, if you find out more about him, a really interesting and well-rounded person, you will learn about Eagle Scouts. You'll learn a lot about fast motorcycles, all sorts of interesting things and ideas. Uh, David, thank you very much. Really appreciate any opportunity to chat with you. And thanks for coming onto the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often. <laughs>